Good morning. I'm curious how your week went. Some of you probably had some good weeks. Some of you probably had some eh weeks. Some of you probably had some bad weeks. The good news is, no matter what your week, we are here gathered to worship to one that we just sang about, worthy is the lamb. And from here on out, we get to make a choice. We get to make a choice about, are we going to follow that? Worthy is a lamb, Jesus Christ, son of God. Or are we going to opt for some other version that we create in our own culture? We were singing the one song, I Surrender All, and I was taken back to a time when I was a youth. And I was hearing Tony Campalo speak, and he said in most of our evangelical churches, we change the words of that song to, some things I surrender. (laughs) And isn't that so true? Turn to Matthew 6. For those visiting with us, we have been doing a series on the Jesus' sermon in chapter 5, 6, and 7, and we're verses 19 through 24 this morning. You hear me talk a lot about culture. Culture comes from a Latin word that means worship. That's why we get this phrase, a way of life. That's a culture. Culture is the way of life that emerges from a common worship of people. When we all get together and say, this is what we really give our allegiance to. And so I've been talking a lot about kingdom of God culture. But America has a culture as well. And I think the confusion comes in when we try to assimilate American culture with the king of God culture and make them one of the same. And you can't do that. Because America worships at a different, different altar than we do. Now, it is interesting in American culture in past times... The kingdom of God God culture, because we tried to assimilate these things, has had a certain acceptance and respectability to it. You know, Christians did not live in fear of disagreement or anything like that. But like most things, history bears this to be true, by the way. You look at any historical nation, you see these shifts and changes. There are seasons where this respectability is no longer true. And I believe in America we are entering that kind of season when it comes to the kingdom of God culture that Jesus is preaching about. Now I came across this quote this past week. I'm going to put it on the board and I'm going to read it for you. And I wanted to stimulate your mind, okay? It really kind of made me sit down and think, what is he talking about? But Rod Dreyer said this, your church may be killing itself and have no idea what it's doing. Everything may be fine on the surface, but deep down, a cancer could be silently metastasizing in its bones, whose fragility will come painfully clear when put to the test. Now, when you realize that, and you realize that we are starting to enter a season where our faith is put to a test, And the church no longer has a level respectability, and I'll get into this later, just by some examples, that it used to have. There's two responses we can do as Christians. First is we look for someone to blame. And there's a long list, isn't there? 
We can blame our parents and their grandparents. We can blame the way the church was. We can blame the denomination. We can blame almost everybody we want. Those Christians over there that believe that way, it's all their fault. Now, I need to tell you this. Just stop it. (laughs) Because we are not a culture of blame. We are not a culture of victimization. Paul says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's the second response, and let me encourage you to take this response. We can understand that today is a great opportunity to be the church. Today is a great opportunity to be the church. We have all kind of research going on about who left the church and who stayed and all those kinds of things. Um, I like what Marshall McLuhan says. He says, everyone who knows, he knows who lost faith began by ceasing to pray. And I might add that they ceased to pray Jesus' way. You know, there's an American version of prayer. Then there's the Jesus' way that we talked about a few weeks ago. So in this passage this morning, in the passage we've been talking about up to date is, Jesus says that we have a choice. We can be part of a kingdom of God culture, where we are salt and light, where we have radical love for everyone, we live to an audience of one, or we can seek to be liked and respected by our now culture. And I put the challenge to you this morning is, where is your faith place? Are you trying to fit into the political PR context? Saying, well, we Christians have to be liked because being liked means we can win people to Jesus. Or do we stand on our faith and we choose to love everyone, even those that don't love us back? In a prayer group that I'm part of this past week, someone brought this very interesting observation. I'm going to share it with you and kind of use it in my own words. What I realized, the difference between the two is living with expectation and expectancy. When I live with my expectations of God and other people, it usually leads me to disappointments. But when I live with the expectancy that God is alive and well, I watch for it, I engage in it, and I see God doing incredible, marvelous things all over this country of ours. Amen? So do you live with expectancy or expectation? Do you live to be well-liked by people around you? Or do you humbly submit yourself before the feet of Jesus and worship to an audience of one, hearing and desiring to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, from him and him alone. Now, let me break down where we're going into this morning. Last couple weeks, we dealt with the first 18 verses, and Jesus was talking about our private life, internal. In fact, the contrast was was with the hypocrisy of the religious elites. So he talked about what's going inside of us, and he used religious leaders to compare that. In the next set of verses we're talking about, verses 19 through 34, he moves it from internal out to public. And he starts addressing questions around things like money, possessions, food, drink, clothing, ambition. And again, the call is to live with God's presence. 
And he contrasts the kingdom of God and living with the presence of God with the outside culture. So here we see the emphasis. You see earth or heaven, light or darkness, two masters. And Christ in this passage is really talking about either or. He says you can't sit on the fence. You are either here or you're there. You can't split the difference. So let's begin by reading Matthew 6, verse 19. And you'll see these series of contrasts as we go down through. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you know that the title talks about saving and retirement. I hope you realize by this passage, the retirement we're talking about is not when you hit 65 or 70. (laughs) The retirement he's talking about is when you pass from this life to the next. We talk about investing. We talk about saving for retirement. We talk about doing all those kinds of things. And here's what Christ is saying. It's a point of emphasis. He says, there are things in this world that will rust. They will be eaten by bugs. They'll be taken by thieves. And there are things, if you want to look at retirement in terms of my kingdom, that will not rust, that cannot be eaten by bugs, and thieves cannot take them. And so he's telling us, point of emphasis, think more about the future than you do. Think about beyond this life. Think about the kinds of activities and ideas and stuff you're involved with in terms of an eternal investment, your retirement for all eternity. The perspective is making priorities things that no one can touch. And your heart will follow those things that you treasure. It's a question of durability in terms of things that we're amassing. Now let me remind you what he's not saying. This passage is not a ban on possessions. The idea here is laying up, stockpiling, and using those things for selfish reasons. Think about small children playing. And even if a child is not playing with a certain toy, when another child attempts to play with it, what does the one child who thinks they own the toy do? It's mine. And they rip it out of their hands, and there's drama. The kingdom of God ethic is this, that everything we have is God's, and it's on loan. We steward them. It's the core value of generosity. So it's not a ban on possessions, but it's talking about how we use those and how we think about those and how generous we are with our stuff. Secondly, this is not a ban on saving for a rainy day. Doesn't mean that we don't kind of think through our lives. Proverbs chapter 6 says, Go to the ant, O slugger, consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. That way they have something to eat in the winter. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So it goes back to the question of how much. But really Christ is saying this. We're called to be intentional with God's stuff. It's not ours, it's his. 
And we just don't squander them without a disciplined mind and heart. Because where you put your heart, where you put your treasure, is what path you're going to follow. You see, we are called to enjoy what God has given us. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, as for the rich, and you realize this morning that all of us here are rich. If you go to third world countries who have nothing, if you've seen abject poverty, you will understand why they look at our nation and even people in welfare, they call the rich poor. That's their phrase for people in our country that think they're poor. They call them the rich poor. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, proud, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You don't rest upon that. You don't obsess about that. You don't allow your life to be fined by that. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What Jesus forbids is selfishness. It's the accumulation of goods where it leads to hard hearts and living in a bubble. In this kind of selfishness, we exclude ourselves from helping those who are less fortunate. You see, our eyesight goes something like this. And we usually go the other way. Instead of comparing ourselves and seeing how blessed we are in terms of what God has given to us and realizing that we have far more than most people around the world, we look at those who have more than we do. And when we focus upon that, it causes us to think and feel that we are less fortunate. When scripture tells us that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in all heavenly places. But if we focus on our treasure here, we will get frustrated with our stuff. If we focus on our treasure in heaven, we'll realize how blessed we are. And when we think about treasures in heaven, then we use treasures on this earth in unselfish giving ways. Another word of saying it is this, divesting here builds capital there. And think about the colossal need we have today in our world. And think about the diversity of that need. Let's just take the one category where there's like 140 million of them around our world. We call them orphans. Think about the support they need just with food and shelter and water. Think about wells that need to be dug. Think about adoption where that is both legal And I go down through this whole list of how we can engage ourselves. Think about the education that they do not have and they need. But here's what we do. We get on a cause and we start thinking, and this is is how prideful we get, okay? We start thinking that everyone should be just like me. And we quote scripture and we divide over compassion issues. I've seen groups of people divide over adoption versus building orphanages. I said, now wait a minute. There are how many countries where adoption isn't legal? What are we supposed to do with those? Well, no, we should adopt. Adoption is the way to go. And people say, no, no, no. We got to take that money because on average in America, if you adopt from another country, it's about $30,000. And so the ones that want to build orphanages say, listen, $30,000, do you know how many orphans that would feed? Don't do that. Our diverse responses should never divide us, nor should it cause us to look down on someone else 
as less spiritual. But we do that. We divide over things where we are being light and salt. Think about the story with the disciples and the woman who broke a very expensive vial of perfume at the feet of Jesus and washed his feet with her hair. She was washing his feet in humility with about a year's salary. And the disciples are off in the corner, and what are they doing? They're saying, wow, you know, she should have sold that and given that to the poor because it would fed a lot of people. But Jesus, of course, having keen earsight, turns to them and kind of puts his hand and says, listen, what she has done is a beautiful thing. You hear me talk a lot about unity. Unity is the community that we call the church. And you hear me talk about diverse unity. We are very uncomfortable because we do not like people who are different than us. And usually when they're different than us, we usually label them, accuse them, and call them names. We have to stop that because the beauty of diversity is where God gives you a certain passion for a certain cause. He gives someone else a certain passion for a certain cause and gives someone else a certain passion for a certain cause. And we all come together. And that's why the blessing is so beautiful because there's just a multitude of examples of how God is infiltrating. The tragic part in church culture in America is that people prefer to be tourists. Come and see the sights. Don't get involved. And we travel to the church that suits our preferences and our ideologies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and many of you know his story about giving his life for the cause in Germany when the Germans were persecuting the Jews and most of the church turned its back and ignored the reality He stayed in the middle of the fight. In his book about community and life together, here's what he says. We need each other to speak God's word into us. And that is so true. And we speak out of our passions and we speak out of our causes. And we sit down, we pray together, we read together. But just to show you, okay, how we get some things right and some things wrong. I mean, this is a great quote out of his book. There's another part of his book where he says this. If you know anything historically what was going on right now in his church, the church was raised on what we would now call chorus singing. It was singing in unison. Very little instruments. Just hearing the voices, hearing them unified in one melodic note. They were beginning to introduce four-part harmonies. They were beginning to introduce things like the organ. And here's what he says. He passionately opposed four-part singing, saying that if we go down this road and allow this in our churches and allow those instruments in our churches, it will destroy the unity of the church. So he gets this right. He got that wrong. Now, historically, what do we do now? Well, we say, well, this unison singing we're bringing back, oh, it's going to destroy the church of Jesus Christ because we need. Do you see how our preferences divide us? We understand that all this, and by this I'm talking about our life is temporary. And everything beyond this is eternal. And Christ is saying we should live accordingly. Think about laying treasures up 
in your retirement with him versus laying up treasures for here. Then the next set, he emphasizes again the priority of what we allow into our lives. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, and you see the point of deception there? That sometimes we think that we have light coming in, but it's really dark. How great is that darkness? When we're being deceived, how great is that darkness? So he talks about our sight. Light is healthy, dark is bad. What you see, who do you see, how do you see? Note the word fool there because it isn't like, okay, I'm just dark in a particular area. No, if, if you allow this to come in, even in a small way, it penetrates everything. Of course, darkness is that we're incapable of seeing. Now, what's interesting, and when you look at the life of Jesus and him talking to the religious leaders, those that were blind think they can see. That's what he mentioned about the Pharisees. That's why he called them blind guides. And those that were really blind physically, and we saw this time after time, they were the ones that Jesus would heal and they would see him as the son of God, as Jesus. This really is talking about our ambitions. What we fix our eyes on affects our whole life. What we fix our eyes on affects our whole life. So in community with diverse people, we move on to another comparison. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now we lose some of the oomph here because our culture does not have slaves. But in this culture, he's saying, listen, if you're a slave, you cannot be owned by two masters. So when we're called servants or slaves of Christ, it is complete and loyal allegiance. You can't be owned by God or Christ, and you can't be owned by this world. See, the bottom line, and I'm curious why he used this. He pulled out just one of the idols they wrestle with. He says, you can't be a slave to God and to money. Now, why do you think he chose that idol out of many? Materialism's hard to break, isn't it? And he's saying you can't serve God and money. And that's why we have things called intentional generosity. You know, our offering is part of our worship service. Why? Because that is where we are intentionally generous to break this cycle materialism and stuff that we become so obsessed with. And yes, people from the outside look at it and say, well, the church just wants my money. But they don't say that at the mall, do they? And the mall really does just want their money. But here we see it as a discipline, an act of worship, going before an audience of one because it is intentionally breaking our hearts away from treasures in this world because our hearts follow our desires. In Luke chapter 12, in verse 15, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's just desire for stuff and money. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Don't store up treasures here on earth 
put them in heaven. Then he tells a story of a man obsessed with being rich more and more. He accumulates larger barns and more houses. And then he says one day, man, I'm going to relax. I'm going to retire and I'm going to live the good life. And God says, tonight I will require from you your soul. What good is this going to be here? In verse 21 of Luke 12, so is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Here's what Jesus was telling us in these three comparisons. We must live in such a way where we show people that it's possible to live with the truth. We must live in such a way to show people that it is possible to live with the truth. Now I want to put up an old word. Some of you might know what it means. Some of you may not know what it means. Asceticism. If you read old books, you see it a lot. It's a Greek word. Very simple. It means to train. We already know that our calling is to be salt and light. We know that we are called to be in this world and not of the world. Now, what's happened in the past is that much of our Christian culture, and I'm putting Christian in parentheses, we would say things like this. Well, the world is bad and should be avoided. So we build little Christian communes and Christian compounds away from the bad, bad world. Well, that violates the calling to be in the world and not of the world. But this asceticism means... We have to train ourselves to think kingdom of God. We have to train ourselves to feel kingdom of God. We have to train our minds and our hearts to be part of the kingdom of God culture. That is where we live. And yes, we have to understand the culture around us. You have to understand the enemy at hand that is pushing against us in the Young adult class this morning, I had Sarah and Tabby share, because they're both from Pakistan, and what it means to witness to a Muslim. And what fascinates me is, they said, if you're going to witness to a Muslim, you don't sit there and quote scripture. What you do is quote the Quran. And there are things in the Quran, if you know that, can lead people to Jesus. But they don't care what the Bible says. So in order to convert or win a Muslim for Jesus Christ, you have to know their culture and how they think. Now, I've been alive long enough to see shifts in our culture that have led us to where we are. And I know there's a lot of hands saying, well, I just woke up and all of a sudden this happened. No, it didn't happen overnight. And I hope you hear me when I'm telling you And again, this is a personal opinion, so you may disagree with me, but I think we are entering a time in history where the Christian faith will not be received with the same kind of acceptance or appreciation as it did in the past. Now, here's my illustration. This past week, there was an interview with Karen Pence. That's the wife of Vice President Mike Pence. And they were talking just casual stuff like their relationship and she says one of the rules that her and Mike have 
one of the boundaries they put around their marriage is that neither one of them will eat alone with a member of the opposite sex. They will never go to a bar and have a drink. They will never go to a restaurant alone. He won't with women. She won't with men. Now, that kind of seems innocuous, doesn't it? It's like, wow, okay. It's kind of cool that they believe that. Well, if you haven't been following the news, the media went wild. And they are mocking the Pences for this ridiculous, puritanical, oppressive view on marriage. In fact, they're saying that they want to bring up Mike Pence on charges because he is talking about illegal activity. And he's promoting rape culture. I'm quoting what was being said by national news media, national TV shows. And I'm sitting here and everybody that sought to defend them, they ridiculed and they assassinated. I'm like, wow. They can't even handle somebody else's opinion about marriage and what they will and won't do. They conclude that they obviously do not trust or respect each other. Because there's such oppressive rules and their marriage must be bad. Now, 20 years ago, you would have never heard that kind of backlash in the news or in social media. Today, this is the world we live in. So, I want to remind you what I said from the beginning. We can look for someone to blame. Or we can see this as a great opportunity to live out light. For instance... Think about the opportunity in the context of our culture on marriage to live out a healthy marriage and have healthy families. I will guarantee you that it will be attractive because inside everyone there's this longing to be loved and to love in a healthy, intimate relationship. So you can blame all you want, you can accuse all you want, or you can sit there if you're married with your spouse saying, listen... We are going to have the best marriage and we're going to let this light shine and we're going to let everybody know how much in love we are. And if you don't think people notice, my wife and I did a, a marriage, a wedding ceremony for someone. They were getting married in the, in the Hershey Car Museum. You ever seen that place? It's kind of cool. If you like old cars, it's a great place to get married. <laughs> they did the reception downstairs and all the tables are between all these old vehicles. You could tell this couple liked old cars. The lady who organizes all that was not a believer. You ask, how do you know? Well, we got talking to her. And here's how she came up to us. She looked at, after she was observing everything and towards the end, she came to us and she goes, listen, she goes, I've noticed something. And I said, what's that? She goes, she goes, you and your wife are the most in love people here in this place. I'm like, Really? And uh, I says, tell me. And she went through and saw this, 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 and this. And then she got talking about how she used to go to church, she needs to get back to church, all those kinds of things. I probably remember the conversation wrong, so. But it was fascinating that she went and took notice. And if you're planning on getting married, realize it's a great opportunity. You know, all the rules that scripture puts in place about marriage and people that aren't married, Do you realize it's there for our good? I mean, God knows the longing of our hearts. The culture doesn't. They think they do. And even though they say you should do this and this and this, and they'll mock all this, that doesn't lead to what they're looking for. Our divorce rate is proof of that. I like what Russell Moore said. 
He says, by losing its cultural respectability, talking about the church here, the church is free to be radically faithful. See, we don't have to live up to their expectations because right now they're just kind of beating us over the head because of the expectations. So train yourselves to say no to our desires and yes to God's desires. That is what this passage is about. If you forget everything else, just remember that line. Train yourselves to say no to our desires and yes to God's desires. Earth versus heaven. Light versus dark. Two different masters. God or money. And what he says is our hearts need to be trained. And we are taught in our culture to satisfy our desires. And they call that the good life. Jesus calls us to expand the kingdom of God in our hearts, in our families, in our world. He calls us to mutual accountability. That's why we have diverse unity. It's why we speak God's word into each other. It's why he allows different passions and causes to be brought in our minds and hearts. And we have to engage. If you haven't noticed, we are not the opposition party. I lived for 10 years in Canada. They had two main parties. They had a third that was called the opposition party. You know what they did? They opposed everything the other two parties did. That was their job. I feel like sometimes that's what Christians do. They look at everything going around the culture. They say, I oppose that. I oppose that. I oppose that. I oppose that. Rather than engage being in the world and not of the world and showing them there's a better way. Far too long we've led with telling the world what we're against. And we need to go on, and I'm using this in an athletic sense, on the offense. Not talking about being offensive. The cross is offensive. But offense means we know the potential. We know the good. We know how to lead people to change their love. And we do that by examples. We do that by living out God's laws in our lives. We do that by radically loving people, even people that are against us. And like the Pences, they don't strike back and call these people idiots and stupid. No, they just kind of stand where they're at. And they choose to love the people in response. Now let me give two examples of this. One from history and one from our time and space. Third century. It's called the plague of Cyrenian. Prior to this, the church did not have favorable reputation in the political and cultural world. In fact, there's persecution. There's a lot of people being killed. This plague comes in. It wiped out entire cities. And like most plagues, people fled. The Christians, they ran towards the plague. And they went in and they ministered people that were dying. They went in and ministered people who survived. And the kingdom of God, after this plague, had incredible growth due to the courage of those who had light and ran into the darkness. That was the third century. Let's move to our century, Liberia, 2014. Anybody remember what happened there? It's called Ebola. And people fled and people ran. But organizations like Samaritan's Person, SIM, ran towards the plague, bringing light into a very dark place that the world was running from. 
Chris Mellon, who was leading worship here this morning, his sister was one of those who ran towards the plague. Now think about GBC. What are we running from versus what we're running towards? If you follow any form of news today, we know that one of the dark places they talk about over and over again, in fact, News Channel 8 is doing a whole series every single night on it, is the addictions that we have in our culture. One of the stories I read is that it's becoming so prevalent now the dealers are selling Narcon sticks with the drugs in case they overdose because they can kind of kickstart their own hearts. We talk about sex addiction. The price that we pay in our marriages with pornography and other kinds of things and families and children. Are we running from that or are we running to that? I got to tell you, the world, as hard as they try, will not be able to fix that plague. Now, they have a lot of good stuff. They have a lot of good programs. But what they don't have is Jesus Christ. Now, it's one of my passions and prayers because we have this ministry called Discovery Recovery here is that we run into that darkness even to a greater degree than we already have. I don't know what that looks like, but I pray for that. Think about other dark places. And again, there's so many places we could invest in, but you pick and you choose and you go. And that's where God is blessing us right now. Let me give another illustration. We know that one of the things we sang about this is that we are to be a people of gratitude. In fact, in Philippians, it says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. (laughs) Imagine that. Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. We live in American culture, a culture of complaint. And again, those aren't my words. There's a book written about that by secular sociologists that says America just is a complaining culture. They complain all the time. They choose all the time. They, they dispute. They don't have debates. They don't sit down and look at the facts. There's ideologies that just pursue them to the illogical conclusions that they have. Paul says this, complaining never wins over a culture. That's why we do things out of the heart of gratitude. In fact, when you look at Israel in the Old Testament, they always got into trouble when they did what? Murmur. Another fancy word for complaining. So here's what I'm suggesting this morning. Christ says two treasures, two visions, two masters, Let everyone show that it's possible to follow Jesus and following Jesus brings lights. It brings eternal retirements. And being a slave to the master we call God results in freedom. Being a slave to any other master, I mean, talk to anybody with drug addiction. What they first played with now becomes their master. So Paul says, go on the offensive. Be gracious. Have a no complaining rule. So this is our calling. Either or. No sitting on the fence. All to Jesus I surrender. 
I surrender all. Say that with me. All to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all. That'd be a great prayer to pray this week. I see our time's up. Uh, I'm going to have you stand. We're going to pray a psalm together. Psalm 119. I'm a firm believer that we pray scripture. Pray this with me. Deal bountifully with your servants that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. God bless. Have a great week.